welcome to the Line Break Podcast. My name is Chris Corlew, and with me as always is my friend and co-host, Bob Sikora. Hello there. We are here. And again, this week, you probably know because you clicked on the thumbnail, uh, or title, or whatever it's called, um, we have another guest. And once again, I'm going to pass the intro off to Bob. Bob, tell us a little bit about our guest. A little bit about our guest. Uh, this is, I guess, the end of a, of a mini-series, a mini-run for us. Um, this is the last of the three poets who won the 2018 Nostrovia Chapbook Contest. Um, all these poets um, who I, I helped judge this contest um, and I, like deeply admired their work. And then the more I got to know them and the more I've like kept watching them for somehow three years now, I've been just like super, super impressed um, and just thrilled and love all of these people very, very deeply. This was someone who I was familiar with before the contest, both from their work um, and from his really, really, really generous and wonderful Twitter feed. Um, and the impression that I had of this person before I even know him um, was that he just felt like a great fan of poetry and a fan of poets, um, someone who was always rooting for people, publicly appreciating their work. And that's just something I really admire. And I think in particular... With poetry, it's a field that can feel so narrow to see people uplift each other and like so genuinely is always just like such a such a treat. But kind of like building off that and that idea of like this person as a fan of poetry, of poets and their poems. Um, I, this is someone who I think you can really feel when you read his work, um, that influence and the weight of that influence um, has had a profound effect on the work and on this poet's life. I'm really excited to welcome to the show Stephen Furlong. Stephen is a poet who lives with his wife and cat and currently resides outside Kansas City, Missouri. Woot woot. Uh, he currently serves as an adjunct at Metropolitan Community College Longview. His recent poems have appeared in Pine Hills Review and Flypaper Lit, among other places. The author of the chapbook, What Lost Taught Me, and he can be found on Twitter at Stephen J. Furlong. Stephen, welcome to the show. Welcome, Stephen. Thank you. Now that you've made me blush successfully, um, but thank goodness the people on the podcast can't see how much I'm blushing right now. But thank you. That was very kind of you. It was very sweet. I, you know, it's my, one of my friends, poet friends, often says it's, it's like you have ESPN for poets in your brain. Like you could just rattle off where the presses are and who they studied with, and it's no big deal to you. But I'm like that sort of I... research and excitement is something that I. I don't know. It makes me excited because I've always liked statistics and research and that sort of thing. I love that exact metaphor because I have thought this very much before. Well, just like, you know, so I grew up in a like a very sports interested and invested household. Um, and like still today, one of the things that like kind of like drives me crazy about my father is he will just like casually start talking about a college football game. Like everyone in the room cares and knows what's going on when maybe nobody in the room cares. <laughs> um, but I found that, like, years later, like, I stopped caring about the NFL by high school. And, like, years later, I can, like, barely read a sports website and kind of know what's going on. Sure. It's just this, like, way of thinking. And I'm, I'm jealous of what you just said because sometimes I want to take that part of my brain and use it in other things, like poetry, things that I care about more. And I find it just, like, it's hard to get that knack. So I'm very impressed with that. I yeah, love it. I'll totally echo that. Um, my dad is the exact same way. My dad, who was a surgeon by trade and somehow was just like, knew <laughs> everything going on in the MLB, the pro tennis circuit, college basketball, college football, and the NFL, like all at the same time. And I was like, you work 11 hours a day. How do you know this stuff? <laughs> um, and uh, yeah, and I wish I wish I had that for poetry. And that's part of why I will defend poetry Twitter to the grave for people like you, Stephen, uh, because like, yeah, I can, you know, I can just easily get access to poets I wouldn't have otherwise uh, seen or heard of maybe, you know. Absolutely. So, yeah. I, uh, well, I grew up in upstate New York and every summer the New York Giants would come to training camp. And so therefore, well, not like I would go with my friends and I'd have the roster sheet and everything and they're like, all right, this is number 53. Who is this? Well, you know, this is Barrett Green. He's a he's a free agent that we got from the Detroit Lions. He went to West Virginia. He, you know, he likes his crochet. And the spare, I've didn't like crochet, but like those sort of things, like just brought me genuine excitement. And like I, I never liked math growing up, but I liked the, knowing the statistics. I liked knowing information about the people that I watched because that brought a sense of comfort to me. And I think that that research fuels 
comfort for me for poetry too. So mm, right, I like that absolutely. Ugh. I know I have seen like some press at some point did something like poet trading cards, but I feel like there's room for more of this. Well, the <laughs> Poetry Foundation, which I'm currently angry with, also did tra- sure. uh, trading cards. That's right. Because uh, Kabe Ekbar has had a bunch of them, and he, po- he posted about them. I'm trying to think who else. That's the most prominent one that I can recall. But, right. And then, you know, the poets and writers every so often that, like does that, like, young writer thing where they have, like, the artistic right. thing, artistic uh, yeah. pictures and such. So I like that too, which is neat. Oh, and uh, what's I've never said this word out loud or heard it said out loud, so I'm going to butcher it. But it's is it Beotis Creative? Creative? Um, it's the agency. B e o t i s. It's the creative agency that reps e viewing Hanifa Diriquib. Um, I think Kaveh's on there. I think I think Nate Marshall's on there. But it's like this, yeah, creative agency that reps like all these um, primarily poets of color in the like the breakbeat scene and stuff. Sure. Um, but they would do. They used to like post like a. I swear it looked like um like a lineup cards for for the for the right. poets on there. Right. Um, just like these like awesome pictures of everybody with like their names across the bottom, like they were you know it's like the starting five of an NBA team or something like that. So. <laughs> Uh, I like it. I like it. All right. Um, we're going to get into things. Um, and uh, I think I've been successful with this now for the last three or four interviews that we've done, uh, where I lead off uh, apologizing to Chris because I have a selfish question. Stephen, you are officially the like most geographically close poet that we've interviewed, despite the fact that we are not physically together now. I just moved to Kansas City over the summer. Um, so we're living in the same state. You are also a uh, you know a transplant to the Midwest. True. Um, I want to know what do you like about living here? Well, I, so I went to Truman State University for my undergrad, which is in Kirksville, okay. which is in the northeast mm-hmm. port part of uh, Missouri. And then my mentor there, Jamie D'Agostino, he used to teach at Southeast Missouri State University, which is on the Mississippi River in Cape Girardeau, about two hours south of St. Louis. And when I was applying to grad schools, he's like, hey, this school's really awesome. You'd be on the river, and Susan Swartout's the best poet you've never heard of yet. And even though I had known about Susan, because he and I had a conversation about her about a semester prior, I was really excited, and sure enough, I applied there. Last school I applied to, only school that gave me a full ride and tuition waiver and the opportunity to teach. So I, after graduating from Truman in December of 2014, I moved back to New York for about six months and lived with my parents and worked retail as I tried to figure out funds and grad school life. And as I kept on hearing all, uh, you know, uh, hearing back from a bunch of programs, I heard back from SEMO and they, like I said, they offered me that package. So I came back to Missouri. I always wanted to come back to Missouri because I enjoyed the Midwest. I, you know, I also had a girl that I liked a lot who's now my wife, which helped a lot. (laughs) But we were were still (laughs) long distance when I was in Cape Girardeau. It was still about a five and a half hour drive give or take, because okay. um, of just how south Cape Toronto is. Um, right. And then, you know, we lived there for a bit. I got my degree, my, I got my master's degree, graduated in 2017. Um, and then she and I decided six weeks before our wedding to move to, you know, where we <laughs> live now. And we live in the same town where her father, her mo- uh, stepmother, and her grandparents live. And so, therefore, it's like they're like a five-minute drive as opposed to a five-hour drive. Oh, wow. Um, I think, and I know that's a long, rambly answer thing, but, like, I like being where we are now because I'm close to Kansas City. When I lived in Cape Girardeau, it was like a two-hour drive to St. Louis. And I saw many great writers in St. Louis because they had a really fantastic reading series through the River Styx. The Pulitzer Arts Foundation would regularly bring in poets. Um and, like, I would go to the Kim- Contemporary Art Museum. Like, they had a really neat scene. But now that I live close to Kansas City, it's a 45-minute drive, and I can stay after the reading instead of, hey, sign my book. Like you what you do. You're awesome. I got to go, though. <laughs> so <Yeah. laughs> it's nice to have that kind of community. Uh, and obviously now mm-hmm. that the pandemic's going on, that's kind of put on hold. But, like, there's so many really dynamic writers in Kansas City and close to Kansas City, like Jenny Mulberg. 
teaches at the University of Central Missouri. I love her work. Refusal knocked me on my butt time and time again. Uh, Bridget Lowe uh, wrote my second work. It's a fantastic book from Carnegie Mellon Press. You know, they have the Writer's Place, which has, has regular readings. Um, and then, you know, in Columbia, the University of Missouri, they regularly bring in fantastic writers as well. Like I saw Claudia Rankine. I saw Natasha Trethewey. Like so many really awesome writers. And I think that that's sort of the, you know, because in upstate New York and Albany, they have the writers, you know, series there. But I never, I wasn't as connected there. I feel like I'm more mm-hmm. connected to the people that I've met in Missouri than I would have in upstate New York. In upstate New York, I always felt like, a, you know, I was kind of in the corner versus in the Missouri. I feel like I'm actually part of the conversation. <laughs> that's awesome, man. Yeah, that sense of community is so important. Um, Absolutely. And, yeah, that's awesome that you found that in, you know, not just uh, one place in Missouri, but a couple of places in Missouri, a couple of different reading series and stuff like that. Almost it yeah. seems like it was a music thing, but <laughs> I mean, reading series. It's kind of like uh, music concert. It's pop. I mean, I th- think that a poetry is the closest to a music concert as far as, you know, genres sure, are concerned. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I love hearing that as someone who I feel regularly and in multiple places, I have like just kind of naturally gravitated to the corner as opposed to being comfortable and involved with, the scene for lack of a better word um so it's exciting to know their stuff here i hope i can feel integrated too eventually absolutely um, someday as cool in the gang someday. said bob get your back up off the wall oh. <laughs> we're gonna move to to poetry proper now i guess we've kind of fully been in that mode um but steven i want to know how your writing has been going and maybe what's what's making you excited right now I mean, my writing certainly has taken a dip because of the pandemic, and there's so many other things that are kind of vying for my attention as far as making sure the people that I love are taken care of, you know, making right. sure that I'm have enough money to pay for the bills. Um, so therefore, like I put I put writing on the back burner most of 2020. Like I didn't write a book review, which is very atypical for me. And this this year so far, I've had a, like a lot of false starts. Like I've had ideas for book reviews, but then I'm like, do I really want to say this? Am I, is this okay to say? And so like that nervousness has kind of creep, crept in more than I wish it did. Um, but that sort of sure. thing also feeds into how, you know, the world's kind of my, you know, I'm reacting to the world news. So mm-hmm. it's been a bit since I, I, I mean, I've written two poems in 2021, which is, you know, one and a half more than I wrote in 2021. So that's a step, I think. And deserves awesomeness for sure, or recognition. I don't know if it deserves awesomeness, but like I feel like I'm finally getting to the point where I'm like finding language again. Um, and mm. for me, when I need to find language, I like go really in. I invest a lot in reading, which doesn't which shouldn't surprise you, I suppose. Sure. Um, <laughs> but like I've been reading a lot, and like I've been reading a lot of my like my mentor Jamie D'Agostino. I've been reading a lot of his mentors like i've been reading a lot of dean young i've been reading a lot of nancy imers uh william olson um and so like trying to you know trying to find this like poetic lineage and it's kind of like a thread as far as you know weaving my own language um and then i've been doing a scary thing which is working with my manuscript which is like (laughs) i I, you know i've spent so much time with it but i still i'm trying to find those fresh eyes um, mm-hmm. so that's important for me. And then I also have a chapbook manuscript that I've been kind of fiddling around with, but I don't know if it's going to end up being a chapbook or like just part of the full length as a whole. So more than anything, just reading and most of my writing is emails to my students, but like, I'm trying to also find creative places as well. Sure. I like what you said about, um, trying to find language by reading. Do you find that, um, whatever you're reading begins to subtly influence like what you're working on. Uh, and I'm thinking specifically in linguistic terms. Cause I, I find like, so I do a couple of different types of writing. I, I write poetry, of course. And if I want to write poetry, I go read poetry. I contribute to crack.com. And if I want to write a cracked article, I go read crack so I can get that voice in my head. Um, do you find that kind of experience with like the stuff you're doing or is it like, you know, I kind of know who I am. I'm just, uh, but I'm 
trying to read widely to, you know, get my head in the right place kind of thing. I think for me, the biggest, like, I, I like to have a line or an idea from a writer that I read that day or I read earlier that week that, like, really resonated with me. And that sure. line will be kind of what's kind of serves as the impetus. And maybe the imagery is connected, maybe the language is connected, but, like, the, that line kind of serves as a compass more than anything. Um, and I think that, that really that allows me uh, to kind of recognize what I'm what I'm thinking about. But I, as I tell my students, like as whenever I have an idea of what I want to write, my brain does something completely else entirely. Sure, sure. <laughs> so I, I like that, that though. That's like that. yeah, that's a great writing prompt. Is like yeah, find a line and just center your work around it. That's awesome. Yeah, that's great. Right. I mean, if you saw my office, my office has post. If you, my wife teases, it's like, she's like, it's like a poetry crime scene because I like I have broadsides <laughs> everywhere. I have post-it notes of lines that I really like, and like I really it resonates with me because like that brings comfort. I'm like right to my right. I have a line from the Bleachers from their song "All My Heroes," and it says, "I'll be something better yet," and like that's been resonating mm. in my head a lot lately. Uh, the, the late poet uh, Linda Hull, who died in a car crash in the mid-90s, her, I have a line of hers that says, each day I learn more of the miracles. Um, and then I have, my therapist and I have been talking a lot about fear, which <laughs> is interesting. Um, but I, one of the, I have a post-it note next to me, and it says, if I feared less, what could today look like? Man. Oh, the poetry crime scene! <laughs> the poetry crime scene. That, oh my god! Po- podcast idea. You're all invited. <laughs> there you go. Together, CSI, Criminal Minds. It'll be great. <laughs> it's it's like you're you're like Rust Cole, except surrounded by beauty and happiness instead of <laughs> grisly murder. Instead of like trying to find everything. Here's the plan. <laughs> I have an idea. <laughs> Here is the body of someone who's been knocked off their feet by a poem. You have to out what poem and what line did it? <laughs> That'd be so exciting. Oh my goodness. I think that I would right, like well, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle a lot more if he did that sort of thing. There you go. Uh, well, you said the magic word there um, in, in your response. Uh, you mentioned Dean Young. I did. And you brought in a Dean Young poem for us to read. Um, you mentioned that among your broadsides, you have this poem. I do. On a broadside, signed by Dean Young. Could you do us the honor of reading this poem? Sure. So this poem is called uh, Delphiniums in a Window Box. It's from his 2011 collection, Fall Hire, um, which in the context of things, this would have been after his heart surgery. So therefore, the poems are really centered around the heart, like the physicalness of heart, as well as relationships and you know, this idea of connection and disconnection. So yeah, delphiniums in a window box. Every sunrise, sometimes strangers' eyes. Not necessarily swans, even crows, even the evening fusillade of bats. That place where the creek goes underground. How many weeks before I see you again? Stacks of books, every page, Characters rage and poets strange contraption of syntax and song. Every song, even when there isn't one. Every thistle, splinter, butterfly over the drainage dishes. Every stray. Did you see the meteor shower? Every question, conversation with almost nothing. Cricket, cloud, because of you, I'm talking to crickets, clouds, confiding in a cat. Everyone says, Come to your senses, and I do, of you. Every touch electric, every taste you, every smell, every burning sugar, every cry and laugh. Toothpick samples at the farmer's market, every melon, plum, I come undone, undone. Yeah, man. Real poem. That That's poem a poem. Rips. Oh my goodness. That's so good. <laughs> it's just. I mean, every time I read it, I just. Uh, I just. I need to feel like I exhale like a like a winded balloon. I just sink. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's that's 
that's that's a relatable feeling reading this poem. <laughs> Um, man. Okay. So yeah, let's, let's dive right in. Let's, um, yeah. Why, uh, why specifically did you want to talk about this poem today? I think the, the big thing for me is, especially with Dean Young is that you never know what the next line's going to be. And that's one of the things that I absolutely love about him in the sense that, you know, I feel like he, I know where he's going. I feel like he's nowhere. And then like, once he, once he does that, then he, you know, he zigs when he should have zagged, he zagged when he should have zigged, that sort of thing. To use uh, football analogy, I suppose, and like, you know, the initial thing that immediately drew me to drew me to this poem was the word fusillade. It's never, it's, a, it's I've mm. never used that word in my life except for when reading this poem, and but like the lang- the language, especially that language, just the you know the kind of the eruption of bats. You know, I got the you know with the fuse and that language there. It's really awesome. You know, the imagery really kind of creeps in and is steady and rela- relatable. I love the sounds at the beginning with the repetition of the S sounds. You know, I think, and I think that that's one of the things that I really take away from Dean Young a lot more than anything is, in addition, in addition to not knowing where he's going to go next, is just the, the repetition of sound. And I think that that's something that mm. I've been much more conscious of in my own writing. At least I'm trying to be more conscious of, um, because I think that that sound and that creation of sound builds a sense of suspense, but also can also, you know, ups, you know, uh, uh, startle and surprise a reader, which is what I'm trying to do more of, because I feel like sometimes my language gets too repetitious. Sure. Yeah. There's a ton of music in this poem. I love that word, word startle in addition to surprise. I feel like I have thought and talked about and been taught and et cetera, et cetera. That idea of, of wanting to, you know, surprise your reader, that idea of keeping some suspense, but startle, feels like just the right word. And like you're saying, with, with those zigs and zags, um, it's not just a sense of I'm surprised by this poem and the way it goes, um, but I, I'm, I'm shaken. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I'm, I'm with you of just, there's, you know, of the many <laughs> magics of poetry that we can talk about, there's just so many of them going on here. It's almost hard to get started. It's absolutely true. And I mean, like, I... And even though I, I and I have it on my wall, so I see it every time that I walk out of my office, and it's just it's you know it's become a steady. You know, I, I used to keep poetry like I would rip out pieces of literary magazines and I'd keep a poem in my wallet. That you know I no, I no longer really do that except I have a Jane Hirschfield poem in my wallet I think, um, but I, I I this poem is permanently in my in my wallet as far as like if I'm stuck or I'm concerned about where my writing's going or i'm concerned where writing in general is going which is a big mm. concern sometimes that i overthink but that's you know the joys of who i am i guess but like it allows me writer. to be centered which is what i think i also really value and like uh, every question conversation even with almost nothing cricket cloud because of you i'm talking to crickets clouds confiding in a cat like that sense of trying to find, you know, I, I, it made me think of my grad school days specifically because, like, reading my poems out loud was how I got familiar with my language, um, mm-hmm. and that's still how I do get familiar with my language. And like, I would, I would read in my in the apartment, and at that time, my my then girlfriend, now wife, was living with me, but she, you know, she had work, and so I would do it by myself. But we had a gerbil. And the gerbil would climb up every so often and just kind of be like, "Hey, I'm here. Just wanted you to know that." It's like, "Thanks, Gilbert. That's all. That's awesome." But like, so instead of confiding in a cat, I was confiding in a gerbil. <laughs> oh, that's, that's so awesome. amazing. That's so cool. <laughs> I had a uh, similar experience with my two-year-old about oh, I don't know three or four months ago now. Uh, so I had a uh, was reading uh, Maria Devana Headley's uh, new translation of. Beowulf and so it was on my nightstand and uh he was upset one morning so we brought him into the bed with us and uh so I just you know started reading Beowulf and he was like read the book like pointing to the book and like demanding that I read it because he's two and he doesn't know how to say please um but uh and I read a hundred lines to him basically Mm -hmm. um and he just like sat there and listened to it and I was like this is not you know this is not like one fish two fish red fish blue fish this is like this is 
Beowulf, for God's sake. So, um, and yeah, we got through like a hundred lines and my wife was, you know, laying there next to him. I was like, I'm really impressed with him. She goes, well, yeah, it's a, it's a great sounding poem. It's like, uh, uh, yeah, yeah, it is. <laughs> now that you bring it up, yes, it is. <laughs> so, but that rules that your gerbil was doing it. That's my cat's never right. done that. Yes. Um, well, Winston, uh, our cat, will you know, he'll, he'll. It depends on the day, really. Some days he'll stay. Some days he's just like, this is this is way too much for me, and he'll just walk away. But he's like, but then you can feed me, right? Because you're you're not really <laughs> right. doing anything. You're just staring in front of your screen, or you're, you're writing and you keep on scribbling out your words. Prime. Primary concern of cats. <laughs> yes. Feed me. <laughs> Chris, I am not going to let this go for some time. I I, uh, am, I was not expecting you to pull out a casually, oh, I'm just reading the new Beowulf translation. Oh, I thought we <laughs> talked about it. At least no, we like... have not talked about oh, this Oh, yeah. Uh, it feels like a curveball from you, but also I, where this is going to come up years from now of like remember that time you read beowulf to your two-year-old yeah. <laughs> that sounds like a really awesome I'm... poem title reading beowulf to my two-year-old there you go <laughs> poem title you're welcome i'm gonna i'm gonna hold it over him when he's in high school and like you know rebelling against summer reading or whatever and be like you like this book when you were a kid or he's reading john gardner's <laughs> grendel and he thinks that there you go everything, yeah so <laughs> But uh, yeah, so um, we were we were starting to get into it um, a little bit with uh, uh, you talking about like the the music and uh, and the the building of the suspense. But if there was our second question, if there was a sort of signature move, um, like what's the thing on the page that the poet is doing that gets you really exciting? Uh, how would you describe that? Like this poem specifically, or any poet? Yeah, this poem specifically. Um, I think that you know with this poem specifically, like the thing that immediately jumps at me and like gets my i mean in addition to the word fusillade like i talked about like it being a word that i've never heard of like that line how many weeks before i see you again like that every time i read yes. it my hair on my neck is just like okay i'm paying attention now and i i, I i'm longing here so like and I, I i've always my the first poetry professor that i ever well second professor i ever had creative writing professor i ever had was very wary about like writing about longing and so like as a result of that, I'm just like, but I want to write about it. And so, like, I, <laughs> and that was because I was thought that I was clever because I, you know, was writing more than my peers, even though I probably wasn't. There's no way for me to compare that. I just had more, I had experience of writing it before them, that class specifically. Because a lot of the people that took creative writing classes at my community college were basically just like, this is going to be an easy class, right? right. <laughs> so, oh, sure. Yeah. Um, and I, my, the teacher that taught that class was always just like, would write so much on my paper. And I was often concerned. I was like, do you like my stuff? Do you not like my stuff? And he's like, if I didn't, if I wasn't writing as much as I did on your paper, I wouldn't care, but I'm writing because I see a lot of ideas here. So try to figure this out. (laughs) And so, um, that sort of kind of makes me think that poetic, again, that poetic lineage of kind of figuring out where you are in your place. And, you know, specifically with Dean Young, because he constantly does things that I'm not expecting, I'm constantly knocked on my butt more often than I, you know, more often than most, not, I wouldn't say most, but um, he's one writer that consistently will, you know, knock me down and be like, all right, it's time for you to listen again. So especially right. when, and that helps a lot, especially when I feel like I, have an idea or I think that my ideas are going really great. And even though they might be going great, I still need to kind of that it, it's an ego check, I guess. That's what I'm trying to get at more than anything. Sure. Mm. I think I'm so glad you brought up that line because that is, you know, as we were <laughs> with our first question, we were kind of stopping and marveling about like all of the things happening um, you know, and very poety things, things with the sound, things with the images, et cetera, et cetera. But that exactly is it. I guess that's the fifth line of the poem. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the place where the creek goes underground, how many weeks before I see you again? And it just, yeah, it stops me cold. It's like one of the most straightforward lines in the entire thing. Um, and, and there's something about surrounding a line like that 
with all of the things that it's doing, but then having that one moment of just like such clarity and just like, here's what it's about. Well, yeah. You know, yeah. that longing. Both and until then, it's almost entirely. Poem... Oh, I'm sorry, Chris. Oh, no, it's okay. I was just going to say, until then, it's almost entirely nature. There's not really <laughs> another character. And then bang, how many weeks before I see you again is just like a banger of a way to open. This <laughs> is a poem about longing, even though I've been talking about swans and crows and stuff and bats, you know. Right. Uh, a fusillade of bats or fusillade or whatever it is. Fusillade. But I was, uh, I was just going to say that both questions, like, because, because the second question in the poem, did you see the, the meteor shower comes after that really <laughs> short two line, uh, you know, bit every stray. And again, you're not really mm -hmm. anticipating a question, but he's just, and, yep. but he, uh, and again, there's that fusion of, you know, nature, but then there's kind of that connection to people. And I think that that's something that I, I try to think a lot about as far as, and I think that's because of my, you know, senior seminar for my undergrad, I did a, I did a, you know, analysis of physical nature and um, human nature in the writings of Linda Hogan and Louise Gluck. And so like it would, that sort of thing was really kind of, I mean, it's still something that I think about, especially, especially with Dean Young, because again, the connection of the time frame of when I was reading him, as well as, you know, just that poetic interest in my life at that point in time. I like that. Nice. Ugh. Ugh. God, there's a lot of mine, lot to mine there. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to my brain. So, my, my father was like, it's just like an onion, just peel, peeling back layers, peeling back layers. <laughs> He's like casually dropping. Yeah, for my senior undergrad thesis, I was doing a lot of like nature reading. <laughs> uh -oh. oh my goodness. There's something here, I might butcher whatever I'm trying to say, but maybe this is something, Chris, you can call me on if I just say it every week. <laughs> um, there's something about the pacing of this poem that I really love. Um, you know, it's not like truly a list poem, but it is this, the, every is kind of the repetition. Every one of these, every this, every that, every this. And it's creating this, just wonderful momentum. Um, and those questions that you point to are, are really good moments. And it, it's not just the questions. It's also, like you said, that, that, that two-word sentence right before the question, every stray, did you see the meteor shower? Um, that's just, like, really moving through this, me through this poem and I don't know, just a marvelous way of we got thing, we got thing, sounds I'm excited about, image I'm excited about, whoa, we're slowing down and thinking about this longing and thinking about all of the effect this is having on me. I don't know. I am And even the longing in this in this part in this, this question part as opposed to the how many more weeks did until I um, see you again line. Uh, it's still imagistic. It's it's did you see the meteor right. shower and it reminds me of the you know the old uh, Tom Waits line in Jonesburg, Illinois of the uh, um, looking up at the same moon or same stars and it's not Jonesburg. It's some song on Swordfish Trombone, stuff like, but like looking up at the sky and knowing that the same stars are shining down on, uh, in the song's case, a lover uh, that's in a distant place. Um, so it's like, did you see the meteor shower? Did it feel like something swallowed? That's like, those are two really evocative, imagistic lines of like, that still managed to convey the same feeling of how many weeks before I see you again, I feel like. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Maybe that's nuts, but I, that's what I feel like. Um, I just caught it as I was, as I was gushing and, and, and unsure of what I wanted to say of, of what I think the poem is really doing so well is that it ends on that line, I come undone, I come undone. And the feeling that we're left with is the feeling that the poem is doing to me the whole way through. You know, like it is enacting what's ha what he is feeling. Oh, that's so killer. <laughs> Sidetrack about undone, undone. I'm writing about Weezer right now. And <laughs> this, this line reminded me of the undone the sweater song. And, uh, so, so Stephen, you sending this poem over gave me a, gave me a tip for an article I'm working on. So thank you. Well, you're very welcome. Glad I could help. But the, the song that I keep thinking of when I think about this poem specifically is Lou Reed's Perfect Day. Because it's oh, that poem specifically, that line, you know, there, you know, there's the repetition at the end of that song, you're going to reap just what you sow. And then, he, but there, again, similar to the poem, there's a lot of like 
or let's go, you know, we're going with uh, specific lines, you know, um, just a perfect day, problems all left alone, weekenders on our own, it's such fun. Just a perfect day, you made me forget myself. I thought I was someone else, mm. someone good. And like that kind of you desire yeah. to be better than we are with the people that we enjoy spending time with, you know, whether it's lovers or a relationship or what, you know, a, just another human in general. It's just, right. I, you know, that's what I, I mean, I, I, that, song, that song immediately pops in my brain as far as connectable. If, you know, if we're like a Lego piece or a puzzle piece or something like that. <laughs> oh, I love it. We've got, again, just so many, uh, I don't just want to say images, it's like, like so many things to point to specifically. Uh, and I was just thinking as I'm, as I'm rereading it, um, is can we, can we all tag ourselves as a word? <laughs> oh, that's fun. Um, I got that. I got, I got the clouds that we're talking to. It's a good one. And the clouds. Contraption. <laughs> there you Love go. It. There you go. <laughs> Let's see, I haven't been sleeping lately, and I have a uh, post-nasal drip, so I'm calling drainage ditches. <laughs> I was just looking at that one, too. Um, I also just found myself bur- the, the burning sugar. Right. Oh, my God. Absolutely. Yeah, oh, oh, yeah so that was good. such a good one. Not caramel, but burning sugar. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Oh, man. Uh, oh, my yeah. goodness. What a, what, a, what a turn of phrase. That's, yeah. Oh, and speaking of tagging yourselves, we are three white dudes on a podcast, and I brought up Tom Waits, Stephen brought up Lou Reed, so Bob, you have to work in a Dylan reference at some point. <laughs> trifecta, maybe? Like, yes, are we, trifecta. Are we, are we doing, going to horse racing now? It's the, uh, it's the, uh, it's the, it's the white college ed- educated dudes trifecta. <laughs> At least we did reference the Smiths. I think that that's a problem. No, Bobby. Okay, now Bobby got to work in a Morrissey reference since you're the sad one of the group. (laughs) Oh, thank you. (laughs) Um, uh, Stephen, I wanna I wanna point to your encyclopedic uh, poet knowledge. Um, I was I was excited when you sent this one because I just in general, you know, Dean Young is a poet that I am familiar with, um, but I have not read an entire collection. Um, I want to read more. Um, so for a Dean Young noob like myself, uh, which way would you push me? I think going in the be- going early, like the first book of his that I ever read completed was Fall Higher. Um, but okay. then I, the first one that I, you know, the, the early one that I really like by him is Strike Anywhere, which is from the University of Colorado Press in the mid-90s, 1995, maybe, question mark. Um, so that's a really awesome one. Uh, Skid is really kind of, you know, that's from the University of uh, Pittsburgh Press. He had a strain of University of Pittsburgh po- uh, Press uh, books, which mm-hmm. like I love their press too. Um, Same. So, I mean, I, w- I would go Strike Anywhere, Elegy on a Toy Piano, Primitive God, Mentor, title. and then I would read Fall Higher, and then I'd read his new one that just came out last year, which is from Copper Canyon again. <laughs> And it's Solar Perplexus. That's it. Great titles. Um, I think I have heard good things about LG on a toy piano. I'm in the same boat as Bob. I haven't read a full collection of his. Um, but man, yeah, you really are like the Bob Ryan of poetry. Like you just have everything. <laughs> I don't have those. I don't have those. I mean, I do have those fuzzy eye, uh, caterpillar eyebrows, but I don't have them. They're not gray. So I got that going. For not me. quite. <laughs> Oh, man. Oh, my goodness. So uh, just to wrap on this poem real quick, um, our final question that we like to ask our guests is, um, what does this poem do for you beyond the page? How do you find it swirling through your head and in your life after you've read it? I think you've alluded to this a lot already, but uh, for the sake of format and giving you a chance to uh, put put a bow on it if you wanted to. I mean, again, there's that sense of grounding from a really awesome poem. But when I also find like the duality of po- really good poems, like poems ground me, but then they also like, all right, it's time to get up again. And so like that sort of gentle nod um, is something that I feel in the poem, at least in like I don't I, in spaces at least like I, everyone says come to your senses, and I do of you. Like that feels 
very gentle, like a very gentle nod there. But like, and then we have that I come undone, undone at the end, and I'm just like, okay, now I need to, you know, I need to re-ravel my toilet paper mummy casing that I had for a bit and try to figure out where I'm, where I'm going next. And like that sort of, you know, poetry is simultaneously acts as a great shield for me, but also it reveals so much more to the world that I ever imagined for better or for worse. Um, so that sort of thing, I, and I, and I, I guess that's my takeaway more than anything. It's just like, it gives me that nod of, all right, it's time to keep going, but also, you know, give me that kick in the butt that I also sometimes need. Sure. I love, I love that so much, man. Um, the, uh, oh man, the, um, that duality you talk about, like a, a good poem, yeah, can center you. It can be like really, yeah, grounding you and uh, centering your your thoughts just to like read this, you know, short little lyric on the page. But then also a good poem, like what's the term I used if, in season one? Blow your doors off kind of thing. Um, I like it. And uh, yeah, it just like, yeah, it centers you, but it's also supposed to like, yeah, blow you away. And this poem, I feel like really does that in the content, I feel like there's a there's a real sense of place in this poem. I can picture where this is, or I have a an image of where this is. But the emotional aspect of everything that's going on is uh, totally unmoored and 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 um, adrift yeah. and longing and stuff like that. Um, even in like I picture this in a remote house. Like I, you know, I, I don't know. I picture this in a remote woodsy area with as many animals are as listed and a meteor shower that's visible kind of thing that uh you know for me is like very centering but then the the whole emotional mental aspect of the poem is totally the opposite of that for sure it's, it's interesting that you referenced like so i think always of the line from ron carlson whatever i'm teaching my students like beginning stage writing which is stay in the room and you know, especially yeah. when your brain up, you know, that blows out the door, like that, and you know, that necessary, you know, that necessary step out, that violent yeah. step out, I think is really kind of neat, as far as, you know, breaking that mold and breaking that advice. Even though I tell that to my students regularly, it also, again, duality aspects. You know, it's nice to stay comfortable with what you're, what, what you know, but also moving towards what you think you know. And what you have no idea about at all. <laughs> yeah. So. Oh. oh. I, th I think I exploded Bob's brain. It's okay. <laughs> <laughs> I think just I, I I meant to say this earlier when we, when I asked you know about about how your writing's going because I feel very much in a similar place of I'm having I've been having trouble writing. I think lately I've gotten back to reading more, which feels great. Um, I pull up my manuscript and just like can't get anywhere, you know, open it, look at it for five minutes and go like, no, this isn't happening. And, and you're just saying a lot of things that are, are making me want to strip back down to the basics a little bit. You know, like you're saying, find, finding, um, you know, returning to some of these books that I know are going to like remind me of why I, I love this, why I do this and what I sure. hope to be, you know, doing as opposed to, you know, just the like pulling my hair out. And I don't know, I'm, I'm thinking about, how much I want you to teach poetry, <laughs> how much I want to be in your poetry class. That's, that's um, the dream, right? Well, maybe one know, day. Right? But I'm just... Actually, the class before we went to spring break, one of the, I, we did a writing-based activity that I usually do in my 101, which is like the, which is the you know, uh, narrative-based essay writing class. I'm now teaching a regular argument rhetoric-type class. But right. I gave my, you know, one of the things that my students are struggling with this semester is finding the balance between their voice and outside, outside, like outside source material voice. Right. And sure, so yeah. one of the things that I did was I gave them an abstract term, childhood, happiness, um, anger, hope, stuff like that. And then I gave them the sense of, okay, anger feels like what? And then they had to write tangible things that, you know, anger felt like. Uh, you, know, I, you know, the example that I gave them, you know, I had a, student, I had a couple of semesters ago, I used the word reliability 
And one of my students said, reliability feels like a number two pencil because that's what you need at least once in your life. I'm like, boom! That's incredible. That's awesome. You're great. <laughs> oh my God. That's so great. And that's a and great then, exercise too, man. That's, then yeah, I, that's fantastic. You know, I had a, stu- a student, uh, and then I had regret, and one of my students was like, regret tastes like Tostino's pizza rolls that you eat after the microwave. And I'm like, yes, that's the specificity we're looking for. Oh, I love it. What a great exercise. That's so good. (laughs) Oh, Oh, my goodness. Um, Okay. You've talked a bit about influence. So I'm going to say, rather than addressing that head on, uh, let's have you read a poem of your own, and then maybe we can spiral into talking about influence. Sure. Um, but let's hear some more of you. Yeah, uh, so this poem came out in July of last year. Uh, it's a poem that I wrote, though. I wrote this poem would have been in, actually, it probably would have been a year before, so it would have been around late July 2019. Uh, my best friend Charlie was getting ready to get married, and I had been thinking about him a lot, and I'd been thinking a lot about relationships and such. And it's interesting that this poem came out like in the middle of the pandemic. Oh, not more like the, I get, yeah, middle of the pandemic. Um, but like, it's about connecting. It's about connection. It's about that kind of, again, that kind of desire to be with somebody who is so, has so profoundly impacted your life, but then recognizing that he's in New York, he has a family. I'm here in Missouri. I'm, you know, building my life too, but we're always going to have each other. And that sort of, you know, connection is something that I, I thought a lot about. So it's called Most Days I Long to Be an Ampersand. And it's for Charlie Ruderman. And then I stole a line in the middle of it uh, from the poet Devin Kelly, who I truly love and appreciate as a person. So yeah, most days I long to be an ampersand. And most days I'm okay with living. It isn't always, but sometimes. I have seen light dance in rooms. I believed I did not belong. My childhood was spent in a room I did not create. The foundation consisted of wooden beams, paint, and a matter of life is death. My friend Devin says death is most our lives. I believe him. Most days I long to be an ampersand because language is fallible. But to be a symbol, the image of continuance, is enough. With you, I'm a room full of pictures framed by memory, and I want to capture you here, because at the end of this, I want to know there's me, but there's also you. I mean, I was blown away when you read the title, so, like, you know, I don't Yeah, that's a poem, man. God, it's a poem, Stephen, Stephen, Stephen. And yeah, I think one of the uh, one of the great sadnesses of my adult life—not to subtweet Bob or anything—but is uh, watching my friends move to different places, and sure. you know, then no, they're never coming back to Chicago, and I'm probably never leaving Chicago, kind of thing. And of course, you have ways to see each other and stuff, but yeah you want to be at that place where you're they're there and you're also you and or whatever the last line was and yeah that's the yeah yeah. because at the end of this i want to know there's me but there's also you yeah 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 i love it uh well uh in response to your subtweet um i i do come back to chicago and move every two or three years that's true that's what i'm counting on And, and see, that's where you and I are different, though, because I have firmly, I'm like, I mean, I don't know if my wife and I are forever going to be in Missouri, but I know that right. I, for the sake of my mental health, I, I, New York is just one of those places that, you know, if I stay there for more than two and a half weeks, I start getting itchy, I start getting nervous, I start, you know, I start feeling all these yeah. really sure. rash defense mechanism type things, and like, I feel bad because I, I love my family and I love spending time with them, but I also, I need to, I recognize that bodily awareness of not feeling comfortable and I need to, I, I feel like I need to like crawl out of my skin sometimes because it's I'm just the exact same way with Tennessee, man. Yeah. I, I, I love my family and I love everyone. 
uh, you know, the people I care about there. But if I'm in Tennessee for too long, yeah, itchy and nervous is a great way to describe it. I love you're both putting like actual language to that because I mean, yeah, I have just like my my family's in California. I have just such complicated feelings about going back there, and I just like I think I avoid saying it out loud most of the time. You know, whatever I feel, and uh, well, I, I think that stems like one of the first lessons that I learned in a creative writing class with Jamie D'Agostino was to say what you know. See, he said, one of the first lines that he says was "say what you've been meaning to say." That was the prompt. Mm-hmm. That was the prompt for the day, <laughs> and I, I don't remember what I said. But like one of the the thing that I do remember was I meant to say I'm sorry, but I don't mean it, so I'm not going to say it now. Oh, and man. like I, <laughs> and but I, I but I, to find language for that, it's important. And I think you know, I, I take a lot of that from the poet Natalie Eilbert, or from her book specifically Indictus. Mm-hmm. Um, she. Mm-hmm. The immediacy of that language, the immediacy of what she's trying to say there, it just floors me. Um, and so that's something I think a lot about. Mary Rufel is a poet that I like. Will like, similar to Dean Young, like which you you never know what you're really gonna get with a Mary Rufel poem, but you know that you're gonna get knocked on your butt. Um, and like that sort of thing, I it's important to me to find the language because for so long I've, I've focused more on like I'm feeling this way. And like I, this is my, this is I have a connect, I have a connection to of where I felt this, where I felt this before in my life, but I don't have these words. Right. I'm not throwing this in your face, but this is how I feel. And so, right. um, but it's that's that's one of my big things that I'm working on now is finding language for the feelings, so therefore the feelings don't, um, you know, override the actions that I right. may or may not have. Which is interesting why you shared the poem. Uh, and it's uh, for those who imagine coherency, because that Steve Orland quote in the beginning, I think about all the time. I'm talking about the poem you shared today, Chris, on Twitter. Oh, yeah. Um, that, uh, um, yeah, go to my Twitter from like six weeks ago from when this <laughs> airs. Yeah, sure. It's a poem from my chapbook. And like, I, you know, it, it, the, lines, you know, the poem starts with, you know, my father once told me I get my sensitivity for my mother. And like that's, and again, that sort of, I how I responded to that for a long time was I internally imploded because he would be like, "This is my son who's sensitive and he writes poetry," and I'm like, "I don't know if that's a compliment or you're insulting me." And so right, like that right. confusion of language too is something I think a lot about too because, you know, for so long I have had to try to reform and redefine things that people, you know, you know, like things like love. You know, especially if you read my chat book, it, you know, it's trauma poetry 101, really. But like trying to redefine these core definitions to then find my, what's inside my core. And that's, I, I think I've been talking a lot about to survivors specifically of assault or abuse. And, you know, one of the things that they inevitably face is, who am I? And I think that that's something that I have been facing for the last three and a half years that I've been working on my manuscript because I'm trying to figure out whether it's a personality trait or a part of my core identity or, you know, vice versa. And that's, I read a lot of Freud and a lot of, you know, Carl Jung and Eric Erickson. It's a good thing my wife studied psychology. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man. Yeah. Goodness gracious. Steven... What a delight! Oh, you've got you are you are a like, writer's writer, man. Yeah, I you just got so many things firing in my head. Oh, I love it, love it, love it, love it. We're almost at an hour, which I think means doesn't feel like you talk hour. about. It doesn't. Oh, it doesn't. <laughs> I think it means we have to talk about basketball now. Basketball. Think, think... <laughs> we talking about basketball? <laughs> <laughs> of course, we had to do that reference, right? Of course we had to. Uh, um, Steven, I, I'm trying to remember when you first mentioned this to me because, I, yeah, it was it was such a bright spot to to learn this about you. Steven, I want you to talk to us about Keon Dooling. Keon Dooling. Um, okay. <laughs> Keon Dooling is a guy that I, I mean, I remember watch I remember watching highlights as a kid when I when I played basketball and when I when I, when I say I played basketball I sat on the left bench and I was a good teammate 
Um, <laughs> shout out to Left Edge. But like, an important role on every team. You know, I hey, everyone needs a blue guy. <laughs> right? <laughs> I remember watching these, you know, the March Madness highlights. And one of the more mm-hmm. prominent, most prominent ones in my memory is Keon Dueling for the University of Missouri doing the slam dunk that's called back because of an offensive charge. And I'm just like, that guy, that guy's awesome. I, I like that guy. And like, I. For the life of me, I always forgot. Like whenever people, I would go to basketball camps and they'd ask me my favorite player. I'm like, he, he's number one for the the Los Angeles Clippers. I can't think of his name, but he's really awesome. And I I, like, I have that ex- nervous energy and excitement for being on the spot of trying to name your favorite player. But like that sort of love and formation. You know, I moved to Missouri, and you know, one of the things that I I still I collect ba- basketball cards and football cards and that sort of thing. It's it's a it's a fun hobby that reminds me of the, kind of the brighter spots of childhood. And I found a Keon Dueling mm-hmm. autograph in the sale box for two bucks. I'm like, hey, that's a that's a that's a that's a win. I'm gonna get yeah. that. And that was the Absolutely. first one that I ever got. And now, even you know, when we if we when we were gonna record this before, I was at forty, awesome milestone. But now I have forty one Keon Dueling signatures in my collection. <laughs> <laughs> that is incredible. Including so there, the there's a company Panini, and they have a, a line called Spectra, and they uh they they basically did this rainbow co- rainbow colorings, and so therefore there's like one numbered out of seventy five, there's one numbered out of sixty, there's one numbered out of forty nine, there's one numbered out of twenty five, there's one numbered out of ten, there's one numbered out of five, and then there's one that's only one in the world. I have every one of those except for the number one in the world. Oh, man. So if you're listening, if you're listening, if you want to be nice, my birthday's next month, although I don't know when this is going to be in the context of things, but like the Nebula Keon Dueling I'm looking for from 2018 <laughs> Spectra. Be awesome. Oh, man. <laughs> <laughs> that is magnificent. But I, I, so incredible. Yeah, I, I was a... Okay, in prep, prep for this, I was brushing up on Keon Dueling highlights because, you know, I remember him from his playing career, but he uh, he was mostly a bench player in the NBA. So, like, you know, I remember thinking he was cool and really liking him, liking his name and stuff like that. Names stick out to me a lot when I'm watching basketball. Um, so I was brushing up on highlights, and that dunk you're talking about <laughs> comes up so much on YouTube. And then, like, every NBA highlight I saw of him, what reminded me of why I thought he was cool is his jumper was so cool. He did that. He had that um, early 2000s thing that I think uh, shooting coaches have just like beaten out of players now, but where you uh, like jumps and his um, legs kind of kick out a little bit from underneath him, but it's like really smooth. Um, It's just like a really smooth, like motion, like jumper motion that just like, if, if, if taking a jumper could be a swagger, he had that. And I was like, Oh yeah, that's why I thought this guy was cool. Um, and he was yeah, I'm really teammate. glad you gave me an excuse like he, to, uh, um, no, that, to. That's one of the things that I love about him is that you know his he was such a great teammate. Like everywhere that he went, like he spent time. He went. He played the Clippers, the Magic, the Heat, the Celtics, Celtics the, the, the uh, Memphis Grizzlies. Like everywhere he went, people were like, "Keon Dueling, he's a good teammate. I like having him around." And like that's something and that since he's like become him. a uh, mental health coach for the NBA, I think absolutely he works for the Utah yeah. Jazz. Yeah. He's a really thoughtful guy, too. And he wrote a, yeah. he's a writer, so Keon, yes. that means if you're listening, he also liked one of my tweets last week, so uh, I officially think that makes Twitter. sense. No big deal. There, okay, <laughs> there we go. Um, so I think that officially makes us makes Keon Dueling a friend of this program. And Keon, if you're listening, you've got an open guest slot. This, uh, <laughs> that would be program. so cool. I would listen so much to that, that podcast. Yeah. The day that we can get an NBA player, former NBA player, to come on here and talk with us about poetry. Um, Etan, Etan Thomas. You, know. you should get him. He wrote a fantastic book of poems. I, I did not know this. think <laughs> I knew that and then forgot about it. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. Oh. Okay. Yeah. We got to get Etan <laughs> Thomas on the horn. Oh, man. Uh, and he studied well, it. He, studied, he, went to, he went to Syracuse, I think. Yeah, I, I got know, rejected from Syracuse. <laughs> <laughs> okay, never mind. I won't celebrate Syracuse. Oh, oh no, I no, I, I, 
I hold no ill will. George Saunders could have a, I have a signed magazine of George Saunders right to the right of me. Um, <laughs> no, I have no ill will. I applied to their fiction MFA program. They get like eight million of applicants and let in four of them. So no, I have no right. ill will. Um, <laughs> I'm just like, oh man. Yeah, you can play in the NBA and go to Syracuse. I want to play in the NBA and go to Syracuse. But yeah, he, he, uh, yeah, he, he wrote a book of poetry after he uh, after his retirement after his retirement from the NBA. I have got to. I think I think I learned that in passing and made a mental note to check that out and then forgot. I have to I have to check that out. Um, Eton, you have a spot on the podcast too if you want. Yeah, this is this is a new challenge for us. This is great. <laughs> And that he's also uh, from the two. I think that he was in the. He's either nineteen ninety nine or the two thousand NBA draft. I can't remember exactly, but he's from that era where I was really. That was when I was really into basketball because I was still playing it, and I like to think that I was right. somewhat decent. But it was really just the shoes I was wearing. Um, <laughs> so, it's a lot of people in the early two thousands. <laughs> As my coach uh, would say, you had really great hustle. <laughs> <laughs> Were you, uh, that's not on the statistics. Did you get the uh, white guy compliment of uh, Jim Rat? No, I never got that one. But I, I remember when I tried out in high school, my co- the coach at the time was like, if you were five inches taller, you'd be on the team. Ooh, I've heard that one. I've heard that one. <laughs> oh, oh my goodness. Well, Stephen, this has been an absolute pleasure. This has been such a blast. Enjoy. Um, Absolutely. What a joy. Man, yeah, this this has been great. Um, Bob, great guest selection for this run, man. <laughs> really, really good stuff. Well, I look forward to seeing what Laura and Liv got to talk about. I, they're, they're so, I, I love those humans. I'm so grateful for Nostrovia Press. and like I was so nervous when I sent that chat book out. That manuscript, because like it was that you know I, so the person that I dedicated the book to, Judy Spadaro, she was my family babysitter for, you know, ever since I was a little kid, and she died, you know, two, three, four, five days before I submitted my manuscript, and like I, because one of her things was like I want to see a book before I die, <laughs> like oh, I, man. but I also thought you know you always think you have more time with the people that you love, but like oh, I, dear. she she was always a champion and like supported my work. And she was always like, so who are you reading today? What's in your notebook today? And like, even though she would not know what I was reading or how, you know, what I was writing, she was always be like, I like that. (laughs) And like, so that sort of support and unconditional love is something that I really try to focus on. And because, you know, even though the poems in that book specifically are, you know, they're about hurt, but they're really also about the kind of the resilience of what love can have you know they kind of, you know, I think there's a one of my friends who said way too many th- nice things about in a book review. He said he called it hesitant joy, and I think a lot about that because especially with there's a poem in my book that's dedicated to my mentor, and you know there's a line from the poem uh, you taught me to you know, you taught me to love again I had doubts um, and so like or I think I'm fusing together two poems I don't know but like I regardless the point is. It moves towards this kind of unfamiliar space of, you know, it, the biggest the image that comes to my mind is like a turtle without a shell and trying to recognize that the shell that they used to have may not be what's necessary and therefore finding something new. And I'm trying to write up that poem, but I haven't yet. So maybe by the time uh, that this airs of the poem will come out. It's coming. It's coming. Well, I mean, that's, you know, that's a sad story, but you're right. That, that kind of support is really crucial and sometimes hard to find. And, uh, part of writing is keeping the ones we love alive, you know? So. Absolutely. uh, That's completely true. That's great, man. It's awesome. Uh, Y'all can't like, just like keep saying, (laughs) keep saying great stuff. Well, well, Steven's an angel and I'm a father. So I think about these things. Well, I mean, if, you, if I was raised Catholic, and so the, the, I was raised Roman Catholic, but then I became a roaming Catholic. There's a dad joke. You're welcome. Um, but like, I, I think of my saints a lot because my grandmother, when you know, she would always, she would either send me a book of history, a book of literature, or a book on Saint Stephen. And like, I knew, mm. I know way too much about Saint Stephen for my own good, and so. <laughs> Like I, I mean, I, so the fact that you called me angelic it made me think of that sort of thing. So there you go. <laughs> wow. 
There it is. That's an episode. That's an episode. Steven's an angel. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Our uh, music is produced by Brendan Johnson. Our um, artwork is done by A.M. Strickland, and we will talk to you guys next week. And Oh, I didn't say Stephen. Thanks for being here. Stephen, thank you for being here. I think we just said that in a long way, but uh, long thank way. you for being here. And, well, uh, thank you for having me. This has been a lot of fun. I'm really grateful for the space. Awesome, man. We'll, we'll definitely have to have you back. And uh, yeah, Brendan Johnson, A.M. Strickland, check them out. They're wonderful artists, and uh, we'll talk to you guys next week.